because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good unto all them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, that we stand in the presence of a faithful Savior. Your word declares that when we are faithless, yet you abide faithful still. That you cannot deny yourself. And your word gives us the promise, the assurance that you have called us by name. That you have said, they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And we know, Lord, that it isn't by works of righteousness that we have done, but simply by your mercy, the undeserved favor that you've given us, the forgiveness that comes through the blood of your Son. And so tonight, Lord, we come to you and we bring us an offering of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we plead the forgiveness that comes through his name. And we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy upon us you would wash us off. Lord, every one of us here tonight is in a different place. That We've come from a different place today. We're going through different things. And Lord, we know that you know each one of us by name. That not one hair falls to the ground without you knowing it all together. And so we ask, Lord, that you would visit us. That you would speak to each one. That you would address things that have been in our heart and in our mind. You would answer questions and musings, the things that, Lord, we think about as we lay our head upon the pillow. That you would give us assurance and faith where we're struggling and anxious. That you would give us hope, Lord, where Satan would have us to despair. That you would give us victory and freedom, Lord, where we find ourselves stumbling. But above all, Lord, we pray that you would revive us. That you would bring us into your presence that you would refill us with your love again tonight. That you would remind us of the eternal hope, the eternal inheritance that we have that doesn't fade away. And so we invite you, Lord, we pray to fill this place. That you would speak your word over us and say, be still and know that I am God. And that we would find rest for our souls. So bring us, Lord, into your sanctuary, into the very courts of heaven, and sing your song of rejoicing over us, and speak your word of truth to us. We give you glory, Lord. We worship your name. We lift our hearts and our lives to you. Be magnified in this place tonight. And be pleased, Lord. Be pleased with your sons and your daughters here. Take pleasure in us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take a moment and greet one another.
All right, the only announcement, I'll just throw a reminder out there that VBS is next week, starting Monday morning, and um, if you are a volunteer, you should already know that, and if you have kids coming, a quick reminder. So that's next week, starting on Monday the 20th. And with that, tonight you can open in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand. So you can follow along with us in our Bible study, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I pointed out to you last week that the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, that it's broken up into three distinct periods of time, the past, the present, in the future. The past, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul talks to them about their cumbersome history. The difficulty, the adversity, the tribulation that they had faced as a young church, as God was doing a work there and rooting and establishing them, their cumbersome history. Then, in chapter 4, where we start tonight, the first 12 verses are the present, as Paul talks to them about their current habits. He begins to talk to them about their lifestyle, and he gives them some brief yet powerful exhortations as to how they are to behave as children of God, as Christians. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, through the end of the book, he talks to them about their coming hope, the future as he talks to them about the rapture of the church, the blessed hope of the believer uh, that we have. Now, as we cross into chapter 4, the apostle shifts gears. He begins talking to them about their behavior. He's talking to them about their lifestyle. And it's a very common progression that Paul uses when he writes, is that he always gives comfort and counsel Before he gives commands. He always talks to them about their wealth and what they have before he talks to them about their walk and what they're to do. And the reason for that is because the walk of a Christian or the lifestyle that we live as followers of Christ is always the result of what he has already done for us. We don't behave or walk or live a certain way hoping to then receive something from God. We walk or uh, behave or live a certain lifestyle because of what we have from God. It's because of what he's already done, the response that we have. And so Paul always gives the reminder of what God has done for us before he talks to us about what we're to do or how we're to live before him. And so tonight in these first 12 verses that we're going to look at, Paul gives to them really just three simple commands. He doesn't have a whole lot to say to them. It's it's interesting that when a, a, a church or an individual is going through tough times, they don't really need a whole lot of instruction. They're usually walking very close to the Lord. You know, when there's difficult times and hard things happening, you know, and and that was the case in Thessalonica. So 12 verses is Paul's instruction to them, the exhortation. And there's one negative, there's one thou shalt not. And then there's two positive commands or thou shalt that he's going 
to give to them. So we'll look at the first 12 verses tonight, and then next week we're going to dig into this idea, this doctrine that Paul shares with them about the rapture of the church. That time that's coming when Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he's going to call his own to be with him. And he's going to interrupt the course of humanity yet again. And so next week, we're going to spend the whole time just talking about the rapture. So if you have friends that are into prophecy and into that kind of a thing, and, you know, that's a good way to get them into church, you've been informed, you know. So next week, the rapture of the church as we get into chapter, uh, the second half of four. But tonight, we're in chapter four. So listen to what Paul has to say to them. Chapter four, verse one. He says, furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. So now as he talks to them now about their walk, whenever you read this word walk in the New Testament, it's always talking about the lifestyle that we live. You recall that Jesus likened the Christian life unto a path. He said, the narrow way that leads to life. And he talked about the broad way or broad path that leads to destruction. And so the Christian life is a walk. We're on this path, this narrow path that's been prescribed and laid out and demonstrated by Jesus. And now we're called to follow in his steps as we walk this narrow way, as we work our way or walk our way towards heaven. And so the walk of the believer always speaks of our behavior or the lifestyle that we lead as we are following his steps and walking towards heaven on this narrow way, this narrow, very narrow path that leads to life. And so he says, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. It's amazing to me the gentleness of Paul. He told them back in chapter 2 that he was towards them as a nursing mother who was gentle towards her children. And Paul said, that's how I was towards you. And we hear that in his voice as we hear him telling them, we beseech you, brethren, that you would, uh, or by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. I find it interesting that the way that we walk or the way that we live or the decisions that we make have the ability to either please God or grieve God. And that's, you know, somewhat simplistic when you first hear it or consider it of, you know, it it, it makes sense. But really, it's quite profound to think that God Almighty is willing to subject himself through his people to grief or pleasure. And the decisions we make while we walk through this life, the way that we conduct ourselves, our lifestyle, is either going to bring pleasure to him and please him, or it's going to be a grief to him. And Paul is exhorting, he's saying, listen, you saw in us an example, and you heard from us a doctrine and an exhortation. So as you have received it, walk in it in a way that's pleasing to God. I don't know about you, but I want to please God. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so what is it that God would have us to do? How is it that he'd have us to walk so that we are walking, living in a way that pleases him? 
He says in verse 2, he says, For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's nothing new. The things that I'm going to say to you, this isn't new ground. It isn't that I gave you all of the easy stuff about grace and the peace of God and the help that he gives while I was with you. And now that I'm gone, I'm going to tell you the hard things. But he brings to their remembrance that while he was yet with them, he told them the things that he's going to say here. There's nothing new. It's just simply a reminder of what he already said. And then in verse 3, he gets into it. He says, for this is the will of God. Now, pause right there. Because I would say that 98.9% of all of the questions that are thrown at me and of the discussions that I have concerning spiritual things or the counsel that people seek, you know, in in the things of God, 98.5% of it boils down to people wanting to know what is God's will. What is it that God Wants What's his will in this situation? And normally, it's about a circumstance that they're going through or a decision that they have to make or something that's coming down the pike in their life wherein they they just want to know what God's will is. And this is probably number one in the life of God's people is just, what is your will, God? And our ears ought to perk up as Paul now says, this is the will of God. Before we even ask the question... He's giving to us an answer. Now, typically, when someone asks a question about God's will, they want to know about something specific, a circumstance, a situation. Paul is going to give them something that's universal. What he's about to say is universally true for every one of God's people at every point in history, at every stage of their Christianity. It's a universal truth that Paul is going to give to them concerning God's will for your life. And here it is. He says, even your sanctification. Now, the word sanctification, it comes from the root word in the Greek, which is hagios. And the only reason I'm telling you that is because it's really fun to say. Try it. Hagios. The word sanctification is a little more complex. It's even better. It's hagiasmos. Try that one. You'll never forget that. It's one of those ones that just rolls off your tongue, you know. And what it is, hagios, is literally where we get the word holy. And it's also the word sanct, S-A-N-C-T, where we would get the word sanctify. And the word means to be cleansed or clean, to be pure, to be set apart, or to be holy. That's what the word means. And the word carries two meanings in the New Testament. The word sanctify or sanctified. And the first one, the first time that you see the word used, sanctify, it speaks of our position. And if you're taking notes, you could write that down. As Christians, as those that have put our faith in Christ and have been saved and sealed by His Spirit, the Bible says that we are sanctified, a done deal. That our position, if you would, the t-shirt that we're given from God that we can wear around, the bumper sticker that we can put upon our car, or the necklace that we can wear, it, it says sanctified. Because at the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are positionally set apart for God. You belong to Him. You are His peculiar treasure, the Bible says, and you belong to Him. And so when he looks at you, he sees sanctified, that you're his, as as though you've been plucked out of 
the fire and placed into the treasure chest of his you know, belongings. You belong to him, and so therefore, positionally, you are sanctified. That's one meaning. That's not the meaning that Paul is talking about here when he's saying the will of God. The second meaning, and what Paul is talking about here when it talks about sanctified, is the process whereby a child of God is being changed from the vile, wretched sinner that he saved into someone that is Christ-like, cleansed, purified, and holy. And it's a process that takes a lifetime. There are two things that are consistently happening in the life of a believer at, at, at all given times. Two things. Number one is that you are growing, or you're supposed to be growing less and less in sin and in the worldly ways of this life. And at the same time, we're to be growing more in Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus. Not that we'll ever be perfect on this side of eternity, but there should be this this shift of power where we're dying to the things of the world, we're decreasing to the self-life, and we're becoming more like Christ. And it's a process called sanctification. And it takes a lifetime. I remember as a new believer, when I first gave my life to Christ, and, and, and those first few months, it was such a battle. You know, I was beating back those sins that were overtaking me. You know, and, I, and I got the victory over cursing. And I got the victory over, you know, going out and partying and getting drunk, you know, on the weekends or on any given night and smoking pot and doing all those things that I, I was doing at that time of my life. And, and, and I beat those things down, you know. And, and I thought, wow, I'm really getting it. I, I'm really becoming Christ-like, you know, this, this battle. I'm winning the battle, you know. And I thought, well, now the hard things are done. You know, let's get on to, you know, the, the, the blessings, you know, the good things. I've got the sin issue dealt with. Little did I know. It goes deeper. Because, see, once those things were done, then new things came to light. Jealousy. Judge, judging people, looking at people and profiling them and putting them in categories of, you know, uh, uh, of somehow elevating myself over them. You know, I, I never thought that was even sin until, you know, you, you start to walk with the Lord a little while and you start to realize there's, there's a check, there's something wrong, you know, in the way that I'm thinking here. And, and the conviction of the Spirit reveals those things. Bitterness, laziness, overeating. The way you handle and manage money. All of those things. And all of a sudden, you get victory over a few. And you reveal that there's ten more right behind it. And it's incredible how it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. And you realize, man, like Isaiah said, woe is me. For I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord and man, I'm, I need help, you know. And this process of sanctification, of being made holy, is what God is doing in our lives. Now, the word hagiosmos that Paul uses here in verse 3 is used ten times in the New Testament, in totality. And three of them are right here in these verses. Before we get to the end of verse 7, he's going to use this word three times. And he's going to use it in a very singular context. When he uses this word to be holy or clean or pure or set apart or Christ-like, he's speaking of it singularly in the context of sexuality. 
He says at the end of verse 3 there, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. That you should abstain from fornication. Now, fornication, the word in the Greek is the word pornea. And, and you know the root of that word. It's porn, or where we get the word pornography and all of the things that are associated with it. And the biblical definition of pornea or fornication is any sexual contact with another person outside of the context and the confines of biblical covenantal marriage. That marriage is the singular place where God condones and created sexual activity for. And any sexual contact to any degree outside of the covenant of marriage is considered fornication. It includes everything else. First base, second base, third base. You know, God knows the bases, you know. And, and, and you, know, you, you know, you talk to people that say, well, we do everything else, but we don't do that. It's fornication. It's sexual impurity, sexual immorality, your translation might say. It's all of those things. And the word that Paul says, the first word concerning their walk that he gives to the Thessalonians, be sanctified, that you should abstain from fornication. And this is the will of God for your life, is that you are being purified, you are being cleansed, and you are being made holy, and it should also be in your concept of sex and in your sexual behavior. And that's what he's saying to them. Now, Thessalonica in Paul's day was very much like the San Francisco, the L.A., the New York City, the Chicago, any, any major city that we have in our society today. That was Thessalonica in Paul's day, 200,000 strong. That was a large city in Paul's day. It was a very wealthy place. It was a port city. It was on a major trade route between Rome and the Eastern world, and everything passed through Thessalonica, and anything went in Thessalonica. And thus, in any big city, sexual immorality was a real problem in Thessalonica. And the reason why it was a real problem is because it was no problem. And that's always the way the world looks at this area, the subject of sex and sexual activity, is that it's justifiable. It's okay. We're made that way. God has no problem with it. And what happens is that because the society, the culture is so steeped in that behavior, it's easy for the church to assimilate with the values of the culture and not with the ways in the word of God and then to justify ungodly behavior according to what God says it is. And so the church, the Christians in Thessalonica and in our day, could make the same excuses that we hear all the time. They could say, oh, well, you know, yeah, we know. Yeah, we know we're not supposed to do that, but God knows my heart. Or you might hear them say, yeah, yeah, we, we're married in God's eyes. God sees our heart. God sees that we're married. It's just a piece of paper. It's really, it's not that big of a deal, you know, because if we have the piece of paper signed by whatever or we don't, in God's eyes, it's all the same thing. No, 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 no. It's not the same thing in the eyes of God. It's fornication. It's outside of the covenant of marriage. And here's why. And I love God because, well, I love him for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I really love about the Lord 
is that he never says, because I said so. My parents always said that. I would say, why? And they'd say, because I said so. And, and that was never good enough for me. That was like a seed of rebellion planted in my heart when they just said, because I said so. I was like, oh yeah, well, I say too, you know. But God tells us why. And Paul goes on. He doesn't just give them this word, the serious word, but he also gives them reason. He tells them why. Three reasons. And the first reason that he gives is because, first of all, it defiles the body. Notice in verse 4. He says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. The word vessel there, it speaks of your body. Throughout the New Testament, the human body, this tabernacle, this house that our spirit and our soul lives in is called or considered a vessel, something that contains something else. It's just a house. And he says that you should know, every one of you should know how to possess or to, you know, live in this vessel. And he uses these two words, sanctification, hagiosmos, which means holiness, purity, cleanliness, Christ-likeness. And he says in honor. And the word honor is, speaks of something that is of intrinsic value. It's used of money. It's used of something that's of a great price. It's used of something that is a treasure. And he's saying that that's the way that you're to honor yourself. It speaks of value and dignity and price. And so if to abstain from fornication means that you're possessing your vessel in cleanliness and in purity and in dignity and with value, then it stands to reason that to indulge in fornication is to live in uncleanness and in impurity and undignified and in a worthless manner in what is considered vile, which is the opposite of honor. It defiles the body. My son Riley, he's 14 months old, and he's at a great age. His, he's in full bloom of his personality, you know, and he, he discovers things, and he's smart as a whip, and, and, and he talks, you know, he, not, not with real words, but just with noises and motions where, you, you know, you, you understand what he's saying, and it's just a great age that little Riley's at. But he's crossed a line where he's made a certain discovery, And that is that while he's in his crib, just laying there, either, you know, having just woken up and we haven't gotten him yet or waiting there to fall asleep, he's realized that his arms are at just the right length to squeeze inside of his diaper. And and being that it's the summer months, you know, he's he's there usually with either just a diaper or perhaps a onesie on. And and even if he has the onesie, he'll go in from, you know, the side through the leg. You know, they've got that limber baby thing going on. And on a couple of occasions, he's defiled the place. (laughs) He's discovered some (laughs) Play-Doh. And it's gross on purpose. And we've gone in there, and, and, and it's just... It's, a, it's not something you want to have to deal with. You know, it's like, it's great when he sleeps until just about the time when I have to leave for work, you know, because then I can say, Georgia, uh, Riley's up, you know. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. What if, what if we went in his room and, and he was defiled? 
He was covered in excrements, and it was on the side of the crib, and it was on the sheets, and in his hair, and all of the places that it is. And we were to look at him and say, oh, you know, he's just expressing himself. He's just taking what God has given to him, the natural thing that God has given to him, and he's just using it. He's, he's exploding into his discovery time and, and, and what he is. And, and we as parents, we, we let that slide and we let that go. And then it's a Sunday morning and we bring Riley to church and we, we haven't changed him and we haven't washed him and, 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 you know, we've not put anything to cover the smell or anything. And, and we come in here and, and, and we're expecting everybody's going to look at Riley and say, wow, look at how cute he is. Oh, he's so good. I touch him. Oh, and, and, and all of a sudden nobody wants to be around him. He, he's by himself. And, and we're saying, no, no, here's Riley. Don't, don't you want Riley? And, no, no, we don't, we don't want Riley. You, you can, you can keep Riley, you know. He's defiled. See, he's defiled and nobody wants to be around him. And here's what happens. Is that because you are such nice American Christian people, you don't want to make us feel weird. So you're going to pretend that it's not actually there. You're you're not going to want to touch Riley because he's all messed up. But you're going to want to pretend that it's not there. So you're just, oh, isn't he cute? As you back away subtly, you know, and everything. Oh, and how's everything? And, 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 and But here's what's happening is that in your mind, all you're thinking about is he's covered in feces. He smells. He's defiled. You need to clean him. That, something's not right. This is not the way people act. You know, this is not normal. You stop homeschooling or something, you know. <laughs> Here's the point. It's that the Bible says that to live in a lifestyle of fornication is to defile your body in the presence of God. And so it would be so much like you living in that lifestyle, justifying that sin, and then coming into God's presence. And you say, Lord, I lift my heart to you. I lift my hands to you. I lift my life to you. Lord, pick me up. I need to be lifted up today. Lord, touch my life. I want you to touch me. And the Lord looks at you, and in his presence, you're vile. Because you're covered with uncleanness. You've been defiled. Your vessel is not being possessed in sanctification and honor, but your vessel is covered in what God would call fecal matter. And he's not well pleased with that, the Bible declares. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes to the church, and he says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. It's defiling. It defiles the body to live in that type of a lifestyle in the presence of God, even if no one else knows. The second reason why God tells us to not live and walk that way is that not only does it defile the body, but it also denies the Savior. Notice in verse 5. He says not, well, let me read verse 4 again. He says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. He says that this is the behavior. To live in a sexually impure lifestyle is the lifestyle of the godless Gentiles. And for you to embrace that lifestyle and justify it and yet still call yourself by his name and go on living in that, in that thing is to live as do the Gentiles and it's a denial of his person. 
It's to live according to the value of God's enemies. There's no place in the Bible where that behavior is acceptable or condoned or justified. Everywhere in the Bible, God speaks of it as being unrighteous. It's unholy. It's not right. And so therefore, to justify it is to deny him because you're denying his word. And it's also to then recreate your own God according to your image. Well, God made me this way. And this is the way I express myself. And this is just the way I'm going to live my life. And God accepts it. The Bible says, no, he doesn't. And what you're doing is that you're taking the God who made you in his image and you're recreating him according to yours. Well, I am this way, therefore God must be this way. And it's wrong. It denies the Savior. It's godless. And then number three, not only does it defile the body and deny the Savior, but it also defrauds your brother. Look at verse 6. He says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. That should read in the matter, because it's still in the same context all the way up through verse 8. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. The word defraud means to rob, to overreach, to take advantage, or to make a gain of someone. And in this context, what Paul is saying is that when you are living in that kind of a relationship or participating in that kind of behavior with another person, you're taking something from them that you're robbing them, you're making a gain of them. The world says jokingly, laughingly around the you know, water cooler and in the break room, they say, yeah, I, I got a piece of her or I got a piece of him. You know, and they laugh and they giggle as though they're, they've, they've made some kind of a triumph. What they don't understand is that they're right. They did. They really did get a piece of her or a piece of him and that they can't get it back. See, where the world has it messed up and where, you know, the psychologists have it messed up and where Hollywood has it messed up is that they say, well, it's just bodies. It's not a big deal because it's just bodies. It's just physical. No, 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 it's not. It's not just bodies. It's souls. It's the essence of a person's life and who they are. It's the value and the honor, the preciousness of what God gave them. It's the seed that blossoms all throughout a person's life or is designed to. And when it's thrown away in a fornicious relationship, it never brings forth the kind of life. And and, and it's amazing. I've seen this happen, and so have you a thousand times. Is that there'll be someone who's young and vibrant. They're full of life. They have a light in their eyes. They have a zeal for for things and they're passionate and and there's something that's so special, so valuable, so unique. It's a soul. But then they get involved in a relationship and they defile themselves. And it's amazing what happens to that people. Maybe not the first day, but maybe, maybe the first day. But that person becomes a shell of what they were. Their eyes become hollow. Their light seems to leave. And that vibrancy, the essence of that that power that they were just diminishes and they become a shell of a human. Because they're giving away, they're pouring out the thing that God gave them that's to be expressed and blessed in a marriage relationship that's reserved for the partner that God's given you, the wife or the husband of your youth. And it's as valuable as a life. And when you get involved in that kind of relationship or behavior, you're pouring it out in nothing. It's the inner 
intangible beauty of a soul. And it's being wasted. And the danger is that when you lose that, you can't get it back. And you don't even know that you lost it. Most people didn't know they had it to begin with because it's invisible, it's intangible. I I told you before about the baby that was born with no nerve endings. He had a nervous system and he was fully functional and healthy in every way, but he had no ability to feel pain at all whatsoever physically. And at first everybody thought, wow, what a gift, you know, what a gift. What kind of a life would someone lead that can't feel any type of pain? By the time that baby was the age of 10, the tips of his fingers were all gone. His hair was patchy and mostly pulled out. His body was covered with scars. His nose and his ears and his chin were all scarred and nubby. See, because when you can't feel pain, you have no boundaries. And because you have no boundaries, now you have the consequences. And the same thing is true with This thing that God gives us, the soul, the essence that's to be expressed and blessed in marriage. See, people don't see it, they don't feel it, and so therefore they don't believe it exists, and so they don't know when they've lost it. And their life becomes scarred. Their soul becomes scarred. They become a shell of what they were or what they could have been. Paul says, don't do it. It defiles the body, it denies the Savior, it defrauds your brother. You're taking something from them. And then he gives to them the consequences. He says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in the matter because, and here's the first consequence, he says that the Lord is the avenger of all such. The first consequence is that God will avenge. He says, as we have forewarned you and testified. Now, I love the fact that Bobby, he's going through on Sunday mornings, he's going through 2 Samuel, and we're studying the life of David. And we're experiencing firsthand as we walk with David through his past, through his history, and we're seeing the destruction that came upon his life because his ignoring God in this manner, this counsel that God gives. Notice what God says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. This is God speaking now to David, who has just been busted. It says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. When David sinned and took Bathsheba and then covered over it by having Uriah killed, David defrauded I don't know how many people. He defrauded Uriah. He defrauded Bathsheba and her extended family. As we learned of Abiathar, her uncle, who was bitter even to the day of his death and his suicide. He defrauded his servants that were wounded and they fell in the battle. And because of the the, the bruise that was placed upon the nation of Israel. He wounded and defrauded his citizens, his sons, his family. The people that depended upon him. 
He brought blasphemy against the name of the Lord and he defrauded even his very self as the upward momentum of God's blessing upon his life in that one moment was taken out. And from there he became a downward spiral of destruction as his family fell apart, his kingdom fell apart. His peace fell apart. His health fell apart. You read Psalm 32. You read Psalm 51. And every area of his life was affected because he ignored the counsel of God. Now listen. Sin is not bad because God said. God says don't sin because it is bad. I say to my son, don't stick your finger in the plug socket because it's going to hurt. It doesn't hurt because I said it. It hurt, and that's why I said don't do it. And so what God is doing is he's telling us, listen, you're going to destroy yourself. That's not what it was made for. It wasn't made for you to just go and experience to whatever degree you can, as much as you can with whoever you can. It's designed and created for marriage, and in that it's so blessed. But apart from that, it's destructive, as we see over and over again on the pages of Scripture and on the pages of the newspaper and of the tabloids and of our neighborhoods. As we see what the promiscuity has done in the lives of people. And so he says, God will avenge such. The Lord is the avenger of all such as we have also forewarned you and testified. And then the second consequence that he gives us in verse, uh, well, verse 7, he says, For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. And that word holiness is, again, the word hagiasmos. Third time that that word is used here. Cleanliness, purity, sanctity, Christlikeness. And that that's what we've been called unto. Not to be defiled and unclean, but we're called to be holy. He says, for he that despiseth, despises not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. The third, or I'm sorry, the second reason or consequence of this lifestyle is that God is despised. The word despised is hated. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that if someone despises this word that I'm saying, if they're rejecting it and saying it's archaic, it's puritanical, it's not fitting with the times that, you know, get with it, Paul. You're not despising man, you're despising God. And I know in, in a room this size, in this day and age, in, in, in a time when everybody has televisions and the internet and, you know, we're out in the world, I know for a fact that there are people in this room right now living in a lifestyle that God would say, he would look at it and he would say, it's fornication. And not with anger, not with, you know, the gavel ready to come down upon you and strike you down, but just in pure reality. And here's what God would say. You're not despising man by rejecting the counsel. You're despising me. It's a despising. You're hating me. You're coming here. You're lifting up your hands. You're saying, I love you. But what I see when I look at your life is that you're saying something completely different. You're saying, I hate you. Because he that despises this, Paul says, is not despising man, the man who says it. This is a hard message for me. Am I sweating yet? It's like, Lord, really? You know. But it's not my word. It's God's word. I'm a human just like you. I have the same temptations and struggles that any man or any human has. But this is God's word, and his commandments are his enablements, and it's given to us for our blessing. He wants to bless. 
He wants to see our relationships and our families blessed and strong. He wants to see our souls full of light and life. He wants to see us excel and do well. And so he tells us these things. And he's saying it will be avenged. God is despised. And then number three, and this is the worst of all consequences there at the end of verse eight. It says, he therefore that despises, despises not man, but God who hath also given unto us his holy spirit. And here it is. Here's the third consequence of ignoring this admonition from the father is this, is that you are defiling God. It's not just that you're defiling yourself, but you are also defiling God. You see, when a person gets saved, when you and I come to Christ, we are becoming one with him. It isn't that we just have him now with us. You know, you've read the bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot, you know. No, 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 that's not Christianity. He's with us. He'll never leave us. But the beauty of what we have is that we are one with him. What did Jesus say? He said that I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open unto me, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. And there is a oneness, there's a communion, there's a unification that happens between us and the Lord at the time that we get saved. We become the dwelling place. Our body becomes the temple wherein the Lord lives. Let me read to you a passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Listen to Paul. He says, meats for the belly, or food for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body... Now listen. Is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Which you have of God and you are not your own? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he expands on it. Verse 16, he says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And again, the temple of God, he's speaking of your body, our bodies. We become the temple of God when we give our lives to Christ. He says, For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Almighty. Is that we are the temple of the living God and that when we live in that thing, we're not just defiling ourselves, but we're bringing God into that same defilement. We're defiling his name. We're subjecting him to the darkness of that behavior, that lifestyle, and it's wrong. We're not to live that way. God is defiled. It's bad when a person takes the essence of who they are and throws it away, just pours it out. 
But when you take the essence that God gives, when you take the, 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 the renewed spirit and the renewed mind and the life that he gives you, and the newness of spirit and the new creation and all things becoming new, and then you do the same thing with that, it's much worse. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, he's given to us his Holy Spirit. Don't defile the Lord. And it's interesting that Paul, in the context of this epistle, would go in this much depth on just this one topic. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, he leaves that there. I believe that the call of God in bringing this to our attention tonight is not that he's standing over us, waiting to judge us. But I think he's calling us to repent. And the amazing thing about the Lord is that he, he, he forgives. It says that his mercies are new every morning. It says that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, that he remembers it no more. It says that it pleased him to smite his son so that our sin could be placed upon him. And he's calling us to repent. And it isn't a message of condemnation and woe and fear, but it's a message of, listen, wake up and realize the heart of your Father and what He wants for you and what He can do for you and the blessing of the life that's given to Him. And if a person will just respond and say, you know what, Lord, I I, I agree. I don't want to despise. I don't want to be in your presence as one that's defiled. The renewal, the revival, the grace, the forgiveness, the hope, the blessing that comes into your life. And I believe that's a word perhaps for someone or maybe few here tonight is come clean with the Lord, get right. And so Paul brings them this word. Well, that's the thou shalt not and it deals with fornication. But now he gives them the thou shalts in verse 9. And the first one is love sacrificially. He says, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it to all the brethren which are in Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you would increase more and more. So the first positive command, or the thou shalt that Paul gives to this young struggling church, is he says that you would abound yet more and more in love one towards another. That you should love one another. And then, in verse 10, he tells them that they should be doers of in this manner or in this arena of loving other people. How do you do love? Isn't love something that we just say or something that we feel or something that we express perhaps? How does a Christian do love? Because he says that you do it. He says, indeed, you do it to all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we beseech you that you would increase more and more. What does love look like when it is done? When it's a verb, when it's lived out in the life of God's people? In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John writes there in verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And hereby perceive we the love of God, 
Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso, and here's where love is translated into action, or into our walk, the way that we live. Here it is in verse 17. He says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so John explains what Paul is expressing or exhorting or admonishing to this young church. Is that we be lovers, that we be those that love one another with unconditional agape Christ-like love. And that that love not just be a shallow saying of something or the using of words, but that it be expressed in what we do and how we serve each other how we give to one another, in our concern. Paul says to this church, your love, your practical, tangible love is known throughout the whole region of Macedonia. That's a huge area. That's like the northeast of the United States. In a day when there was no such thing as an internet or a railway system or airlines or cars or buses. I mean, how is it that this little tiny church in this city could be so full of the love of Christ that the whole area of that continent, that whole um, isthmus, you know, whatever, there would know about the love that they have because they were doers of it. And Paul says, indeed you do it, but I beseech you, increase Let that grow. Be diminishing in the world's false love and be increasing in God's pure love, the real love. So love sacrificially, he tells them in verses 9 and 10, and then he finishes in verses 11 and 12 with his third command, his third admonition, which is to live in simplicity. He says, "...and that you study to be quiet." And to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The word study there means to strive. It means to labor. It means to endeavor. And what the idea is that you're doing something with purpose. And what is it that we're to do with purpose? He says quietness. That you study or strive or labor to live in quietness. And the word means rest, peace, and to be settled. And what he's saying to them, to us, he's saying, make it your golden life to just live a very simple, satisfied, and quiet life. Don't get yourself so tied up with the complexities of the world that you choke the fruit that God wants to bring forth in your life and you choke literally the presence of the Lord out of your life. Live in simplicity. Study to be quiet. And then he says, and do your own business. It means mind your business. It's a very polite way for Paul to say what many people need to hear, right? (laughs) Just mind your business. The word business means to keep to oneself. So do your own thing. Don't be meddling about in everybody's business. Now, Thessalonica, big city. I'm sure they had tabloids. They had gossip. They knew what was going on in everybody else's life. And they fed on it. They spread those stories around. And Paul's just saying, listen, don't get involved in that. There's enough complexity in one life that you don't need to be involved in what everybody else is doing and everybody else's affairs. Just mind your business. That's what Paul is saying to them. And then finally, he says, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And the word work means to labor, and it means to keep occupied. Keep yourself occupied. 
In the Garden of Eden, it says that God put Adam in there to tend and to keep it. That God's purpose for putting them there, it was a joy. Adam loved what he had to do there. I mean, everything in the garden was absolutely perfect. And, and, and he was just dutifully employed, Adam was. And he enjoyed the works of his hands. But then the curse came, and you know the story. Eve and Adam, they take of the fruit. They're banished from the garden, and when God pronounced the curse that would come because of their disobedience and their taking of that substance, that fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, God spoke to Adam, and he said, Cursed is the ground, listen, for thy sake. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. From the toil and the sweat of your brow, you will make it to bring forth all the days of your life. For from dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. But God basically said that part of the consequence of what you've done and what you've brought upon all of humanity is that now you're going to work. And that that work, that toil, that labor is going to be in the sweat of your brow. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be frustrating. It's not going to be like it was in the Garden of Eden where everything was simple and it just happened the way you want it to. And when there wasn't enough water, you just called for it and it would mist on the northeast quadrant or whatever. It's not going to be that way anymore. Is that you're going to have to figure it out and work through things and struggle a little bit. But God said, it's for your sake. It was actually an act of mercy. Because idleness... You've heard the saying, right? Idle hands and idle minds are what? Still the devil's workshop. And it's true. Classic passage, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, it was the time of year that kings go forth to war and David stayed at home. And that is the precursor to the destruction of the rest of his life. Is that he wasn't busy. He was in a season of idleness and it turned to his demise, his destruction. In Ezekiel chapter 16, it talks about the sin of Sodom. Do you know what the sin of Sodom was? I don't think you do. Maybe you do. You're thinking, of course, everybody knows what the sin of Sodom is. No, no, no. Not according to God. Do you know what God said the sin of Sodom was? Ezekiel chapter 16, God says, This is the sin of your sister Sodom. Listen. Pride. Fullness of bread. Idleness of time. And lack of concern for the poor. That's what was going on in Sodom. And it was under that backdrop that the immorality ensued. And ultimately brought the destruction of God upon them. Pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, and lack of concern for the poor. It's not good for man to be idle. And thus God gives to us the mercy of work. He gives us something to do. And even the difficulty, even the strain, even the strenuous part of figuring it out and making it happen and clashing personality-wise and hearing things you don't want to hear and experiencing things you don't want to experience and going through the toil and the sweat of it, it's the mercy of God because He is saving you through that from something else that would ultimately perhaps destroy you. There's a verse in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 through 27. He says, The Lord is good unto all them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. And then he says, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's good for a man 
And that's what Paul is saying here. Work with your own hands. Be busy. Keep yourself occupied. It will keep you out of trouble. It works. It's amazing. And then he says why in verse 12. He says that you may walk honestly. The word honestly means in decency and in seemliness. Toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. That you would be provided for. That you would have the things that you need. And that it would be a witness to those that are on the outside seeing you living life in the presence of the Lord in the things of God. Being provided for, living in quietness, living in simplicity, loving practically, abstaining from defilement, and it would be a witness to them. And so Paul gives them this admonition, this exhortation. Next week we'll talk about the rapture of the church as Paul moves into the third section of this epistle and he talks to them about their coming hope, the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that thing that we're awaiting. And so we'll commence with that next week when we pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4. Why don't we pray together? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that, it, that it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And you tell us that it doesn't return to you void, but that it will accomplish the thing that it was sent forth to do. And so I pray tonight, Lord, that you would take the word that we heard and that you would let it be a searchlight to our soul and that you'd show us those areas, Lord, where we need to be sanctified, where we need perhaps to repent or to die and to let the Spirit of God live and grow. We ask you, Father, that you would increase the presence of your Son with us. You would bring us into that place that we would experience the fullness of what you have for us. Pray you give us the power to be doers and not just hearers. So fill us now, Lord. We thank you for this time of refreshing. We ask for your blessing upon each one of us as we go our way. Fill us, Lord. May we know your love in a greater measure. May we experience your forgiveness and your mercies. May we experience your blessing upon all that we do, the work that we do, our homes, our families, our children, our parenting. you to be that refuge that you promised to be in your word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.